pastor out of town for the week, for this week and actually for next week as well. We have the privilege of having a guest uh, preacher with us. His name is Scott Goodness. Godinez. Almost got it right. Scott Godinez. He came from Austin, and that's a forgivable offense. <laughs> he now lives in Highland Park, but soon he and his family will be moving to Pueblo to begin the church start, the, uh, the beginning, the, the church plant at uh, Lake Avenue. There's some good things going on there, and I'm going to let him tell us whatever else we need to know about him, but I'd ask that you be in prayer as he brings to us God's word. Thank you, Scott. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Happy to see all of you. I'm happy to be here. I love getting to preach, and it was such an honor that Greg would invite me and allow me to be here at Aberdeen with all of you. Uh, as he said, my name is Scott Godinez. Um, I know I look like I'm like 19, but I promise you I'm allowed to have kids. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> uh, I'm getting older. I shouldn't have. I'm 32. I've wanted to be old for a long time because when I was a kid, I looked even younger. Like when I was 16, I had my driver's license. I'm like, officer, I promise you I'm not nine years old, please. Like it was crazy. So I've always, I've always looked a little young. But um, yeah, no, so I'm so excited. My family and I, we live, like I said, in Denver. And we just got a house. Hopefully everything goes through just fine. And we're going to move here, um, ideally, in middle of May sometime. We're so excited because over the past almost 10 months, uh, starting in last July, um, God has really affirmed and kind of confirmed his calling on my, fa- my life and my family's life for us to move to Pueblo and plant a church right off Northern Lake Avenue, 1345 Lake Avenue. And, and I'm so excited because not only is that church filled with history and tradition, um, but the whole community is as well. Um, I love, similar to the way Aberdeen is situated, I love seeing churches that have like houses across the street. To me, it's the coolest thing because it immediately, to me, this is, this is how I see it, it immediately makes me feel like, all right, if I'm a church and there's a person living across the street, there ain't no reason why that person shouldn't be in this church, unless there was some other church, which is fine. But they better know about Jesus because, I mean, I could throw a rock and hit their house kind of thing, right? So, I love having churches right next to neighborhoods because it immediately says, are we reaching this community because they live right there. And at a minimum, we can be praying for them because they're right there too. So I, I love it, and I'm so excited. And it's funny because now it's easy to talk about. Um, in the beginning, the early stages of when my wife and I were, were praying over coming to Pueblo and moving our family, um, it, was kind of like a, it was kind of like a special thing. Like we felt like, hey, maybe God's calling us here, and, and we didn't want to just tell anybody you know, some people are like, oh, you'd be, you know, people aren't always supportive. And so I wanted to keep it, you know, just kind of private, keep it kind of secret, just to my wife and I, and then to my close friends, and then to some of my mentors. It was like this really special thing to me, um, almost like a gift that God would even, you know, would, would say, hey, we, we want you. And, and I don't know if any of you have ever had that, kind of this, this special thing you want to keep quiet, this, this secret, keep quiet. Maybe, maybe it is a real gift. Maybe you've been given a, a kind of gift that's really special to you. You treasure it. Uh, maybe it's framed. Maybe you keep it in a safe, something really, really valuable to you. Um, I remember when I was a senior in high school, I got to see one of America's, you know, greatest gifts or greatest treasures, better word to say, one of their greatest treasures. And it was, I went to Washington, D.C. My older brother lived there. And uh, I was so excited because I love museums. I love to learn things and see all the museums. And so 
uh, a couple months in advance, we had to sign up so we could go to the National Archives. And so we're going to the National Archives, and it's the craziest thing because I was, um, like I said, 17, 18 years old at the time, and, and security wasn't that big of a deal, kind of, you know, on the airports. But it was like you walk in, there's like all the guards with like the, the real guns, and then they have like the machine where you put your stuff through like at the airport. They got the metal detectors, and they're checking everybody. They got the dog sniffing people, I guess, because they don't want you bringing anything in. And so we get through all that. It's all crazy, and I'm finally getting to where I want to get to. If you've ever been to the National Archives, you, you probably recognize this. There's this dimly lit room. It's really kind of dark. This beautiful rotunda that just goes up into the sky almost. It's this huge room, and there in the center, there's these two guys, big old machine guns again, standing straight up with this big glass-looking box right in between them. And there's a couple of them littered around the room, but the one in the center is where I wanted to go see. And so I walk up to it, and right in front of me, you know, shielded behind um, layers of bulletproof glass and, you know, with armed guard left to the left and the right is the Declaration of Independence. And it was so cool because I'm standing right there face-to-face with this document that, you know, I mean, arguably it's just paper, but is symbolic of something that so many men and women died for. And not just that, if you go to the archives, they had like the flag, you know, like, like not just any flag, like the flag, the one that the, the, uh, Francis Scott Key wrote, the Star-Spangled Banner, hung above Fort McHenry. And I'm sitting there, and I, I, I thought it was just going to be like a, like a flag. It's just like a huge thing. Like it's big. It's like a really, really big flag, and, uh, which gives me more respect for, I can't remember her name, but she sewed all the stars and everything. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got to work on my history. <laughs> um, and I was just like, this is so cool. And you see, you know, the holes and the tears, not just from age, but from being in battle. This was a flag that flew above a fort for 25 hours when soldiers were being bombarded by the British Navy during the War of 1812. Shrapnel, cannonballs, things exploding overhead. And they continued to press on. They continued to fight because they obviously treasured something. Maybe it was freedom. Maybe they were fighting for their family. Whatever it may have been, these men were willing to die for it. And it kind of makes me think, you know, like, that's a common thing that we're drawn to. Like, the highest grossing movie of all time, I think, is like the Avengers, right? And it has the story of these heroes who are willing to die for this cause they believe in. Something they treasure so much, they're willing to die it. They'll go to great lengths to protect it, to fight for it, to sacrifice, like I said, even maybe die for it. And it draws us to this question this morning that we're going to focus on, which is simply this. It's something we all need to ask ourselves. What is your greatest treasure? What is your greatest treasure? Or an easier question is what ought to be your greatest treasure? You see, God's Word makes it clear that Jesus must be the greatest treasure of our lives. He is our Lord, our shepherd, and if you read through the Bible, you see other names like Emmanuel, you know, mighty counselor, prince of peace, and the list goes on and on, and every word ascribes to Jesus the weight of his value and worth in our lives. We must treasure him. Jesus must be your greatest treasure. You see, the difficulty is when we live in a country so filled with shiny things, opulence, nice stuff. It's easy to forget Jesus. And it's not that we don't worship him or we don't pray to him or we don't gather on. We we do all those things. It's that with so much material wealth around us, we can become distracted. I think we begin to look at luxuries as needs. And we invest our lives into this place as if eternity and heaven were not waiting for us. 
So what must we do to make Jesus our greatest treasure? We're going to focus on this story of a guy who I think really demonstrates that for us. And so if you want to follow along, you've got your Bible, you've got a phone, we're going to be in Luke 19. Also, if you want to follow along on the screen, um, I'm not sure if the words will be big enough or not, uh, but if they are, you can follow along there. But we'll be in Luke chapter 19. Um, if you've got a phone, you can just Google Luke 19, and it'll bring you right to it. We're going to be in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through 10. So Luke 19, verse 1 through 10. I love this story. It's one of my favorite ones. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he runs on ahead and climbs into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I, I love this story so much, and I think there's a song that goes with it. I didn't grow up in the church, so I never got to learn the song, but it's like, Zacchaeus is a wee little, something like that, yeah. Some of y'all know, some of y'all know. Um, and it's so fun, because to me it's such a silly kind of story, but it's so cool, and it draws our attention. The first part we got to see, and it's our first point this morning, is that we need to treasure Jesus more than status. You got to treasure Jesus more than your status, more than your reputation. See, Zacchaeus was widely disliked. Um, People knew him for sure, but they definitely didn't like him. And a man of his wealth and reputation was surely known to all of Jericho, right? He would have been a public figure with substantial dignity. Yet in these verses right here, we see a man acting a lot more like a child. Notice that Zacchaeus, when he realized he was unable to see Jesus decided that his next best option was to run ahead of the crowd and climb up a tree. Like, why not just tell people to move? Like, get out of the way, yell, shove them, push them. What, like, you, you, should, you could do as a man. Instead, he runs ahead and climbs up a tree. And I just have to think, like, like this had to have been a humorous scene. Um, check this slide behind me. He was likely wearing some clothes like this. He's got his big robes. He's got the little head thing, all the extra layers of clothing. Like, it's not like this guy shopped over at Sportsman's Warehouse, you know? Like, he's, he's got this whole, like, dress and garb going on, probably has sandals on his feet. And so this rich old man hikes up his little robes, and he's running up to the tree and climbs up the tree to see Jesus. Don't miss how silly and ridiculous this must have been. I mean, I feel silly when I'm going to the grocery store. You know, there's like a car waiting, and you're trying to walk to the parking lot, going, sorry, sorry, and you kind of run across. And I'm like, oh, I feel so dumb, but I don't want to be that guy who's like, you know? 
Like, I kind of try, try to pick it up a little bit. Not, not like knees to chest, but, you know, I'm, I'm moving. And I feel kind of silly. Or have you ever been late for a plane? Um, or maybe you're there early and you see those guys who are late and they're, you know, they're running through the airport like, oh my gosh. And you're like, it, it looks ridiculous sometimes. Especially imagine a much older man who would have been, you know, almost presidential in his status to run. And not only run, but to climb a tree. I can't remember the last time I climbed a tree. Surely there were people who were mocking his efforts. I mean, it's, it'd be easy to tease him, right? Because everyone knows he's short, but now it's even more obvious. He had to climb a tree. He's drawing attention to himself, his own height deficiency, which some of us guys can be kind of sensitive about. And people already hated this guy, and now he's just putting himself up on a silver platter of ridicule. Why? Why would he continue to embarrass himself? And here's why, guys. When Jesus is your greatest treasure, surrendering your status and your pride is the only response. It may cause you to be teased, ridiculed, misunderstood, and more. So why would anyone endure this? Because Jesus is worth more to you than your reputation. Friends, do not be surprised when John tells us, if you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Again, James continues this thought in other words. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A fallen, sin-saturated world will never respect or support the sacrifices you make for Jesus. This is a hard saying. And I'm sure some of you have felt this when you've had to make sacrifices for following Jesus. I mean, has anyone ever chosen Jesus over a friendship? Has anyone ever chosen Jesus over unrighteousness? You see, it tends to upset people. For what fellowship does light have with darkness? Treasuring Jesus above everything will affect how people think of you. So long as Jesus is just what you do, as long as he's confined to an accessory of your life, just what you do on Sunday, no one's going to be concerned. That's just, they, they go to church on Sunday, they talk about Jesus on Sunday, and that's it. That's fine. Little box. But the moment you begin to make him part of your everyday life, the moment Jesus becomes your greatest treasure is when the world pushes back. Consider King David's reaction when the Ark of the Covenant, your know, big old box, carrying the Ten Commandments, entered, excuse me, <clears throat> entered into Jerusalem. His reaction was entirely unbecoming of a king. And his wife watched him in shame. Here's the story. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, that's his wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord... She despised him in her heart. You see, Michael is entirely disappointed in David for his exuberant adoration, the, the, the overflow, the expression of his praise. He was so overcome with love and joy for God that he couldn't act like a, a stoic king who just stands there, mm, Jesus, God. No, he was overcome with emotion. And she says, look at him. He's acting like a lower class citizen. She says he's uncovered, meaning he wasn't wearing all those fancy kingly robes. He just looked like a regular person. He probably took them off so he could dance even more. 
David's response is dripping with evidence of what he treasured more than his status as king. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I will humble myself before God. You know, it, it really broke my heart. I had, I had a friend of mine. We were, we were becoming better friends. And I, I was telling him, hey, I'm, I'm moving to Pueblo. And, and he's kind of like, okay, sure, 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 sure. And we're telling him, hey, we're starting to look at, you know, houses and different things. And it's like, you know, getting serious. He's like, are you seriously going to do this? I was like, yeah, I'm seriously going to do this. Like, like, God has called me. I must go. And he says to me, I can't repeat exactly what he said in church or really anywhere. But he's like, you're blank crazy. And he said it to my face. And I was kind of like, man, I thought we were friends, you know. And, and then we had this kind of longer dialogue. And he was just kind of like, you're ridiculous. Why would you leave Highlands Ranch? This is the most coveted neighborhood to live in. It's great here. Everybody wants to be here. And I'm like, not me. I want more then all of this, I want everything that Jesus has for me. And when he says go, I'm going to go. What might this look like for you? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Because there is nothing more worthy of your love and adoration than Jesus. And there is great blessing to be found in lowering yourself before God. To elevate Jesus' worth, to lower yourself. John said he must increase, I must decrease. Here's the blessings that come from following this. In First uh, Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Another one, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Funny thing about that, it's a side note. I, I was working on my first jobs in Colorado. I was working at this church, and they didn't really have an office for me. I was like the creative arts director slash helping with youth. And I was, like, in this little copy room. Like, they had, like, the printer was next to me. I call it the cloffice because, like, a closet office. And I was, like, I'm going to seminary. Like, I'm smart. I feel the anointment of the Spirit. I don't know. I, I thought it was a big deal. I thought it was a hot shot. And um, I was, like, I should be in a fancy desk and respect, blah, blah, blah. And I read this verse, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And I, I wrote it on a little piece of paper, and I, I put it across, and I stuck it at the top of the ceiling of my, of my office, on, in my, my, my cloffice. So now I get mad, I look up like, ugh, like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Humble myself. Humble, humble. Trust God to exalt us. Here's another one. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. You see, this is great news in a social media-filled world when so many people are competing for the fame and the prestige, the renown of others. You see, the follower of Jesus does not have to be stressed with getting more likes than the next person. We can surrender our reputation to Jesus and treasure him more than your worldly status. And this has major effects on our life because you can be freed from the control of outside opinion. You might still care what others think. You might still be concerned what others think of you, but you will never be controlled by what other people think of you. Because the moment you make Jesus more important than your status, you invite Jesus to be the judge of your identity. Someone might say to me, wow, Scott, you're crazy for leaving Denver and trying to start a church in Pueblo. And I can know that their opinion means nothing to me when compared to the opinion of Jesus, who is my greatest treasure. Friends, you don't have to impress anyone else when you treasure Jesus more than your status. 
You don't need fancy rims for your car. You don't need designer clothes or even to live in the right neighborhood to feel like your life has meaning. But there is a pressure to always have the best that we can afford, right? Sometimes even more than we can afford. I mean, the buying ethic in our country is focused on getting as much as possible. Like, anyone ever do a, uh, you ever see one of those buy one, get one free deals and you don't take the free item? Like, there's probably got to be someone here who go buy it just to get the free item. And it's so funny because the ironic thing is if we keep buying stuff because it's a great deal, we're going to go broke with all the money we're saving. Yeah, it's coming, it's coming. There's a certain comfort in plenty. Our culture tries to tell us if you have lots of money or you own fancy things, you're important and you're good. But if you're poor and don't have fancy things, you're not important. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong with you. But when we choose Jesus as our greater treasure, we find ourselves not as impressed with all the material possessions of the world. And that's why, here's our next point, we're called to treasure Jesus more than our possessions. We need to treasure Jesus more than our possessions. So moving kind of back into that story of Zacchaeus, we're in verses 6 and 8. Some time passes between the moment that Jesus says, hey, come down from the tree. We don't see it in Scripture. It just kind of like goes to the next verse. But they've gone from the tree, and now they're kind of in Zacchaeus' house. And there's this conversation which is being had at his home. And it's important to know that most tax collectors were extortionists. They would increase the taxes beyond what was expected so they could skim a little off the top and keep it for themselves. And we find Zacchaeus going way beyond the norm in regard to his possessions. He commits to giving away half of everything he owns to give to the poor. And then he goes beyond that as well. You see, he declares to refund everyone. So first, give away half, then refund everyone what he stole from them. And this refund is far more than what was legally required. You see, instead of just a 20% increase added to the refund per the law, Zacchaeus decided to go four times as much, in line with what might be considered the harshest of penalties for this kind of infraction in Old Testament law. So we have one of the richest men in all Jericho dining with Jesus, sacrificing half of all he owns to give to the poor, then with the remaining 50% of his wealth, he is declared to pay back everyone in full plus an additional 400%. And I'm just like, man, I need to find a guy to rob me like Zacchaeus. Like 400%, that sounds amazing. Zacchaeus had come into possession of a greater treasure than all his money and things. And I don't think we can overstate the massive hit to Zacchaeus' lifestyle here. He had to have been driving the nicest camel on the block, and now he got to trade that in for last year's donkey. Like, brother got, just gave away all his money. We have so many longings in our lives that this world tries to fill, but it never will. This quote from C.S. Lewis, he says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It makes me think back to ever since I was able to hold a quarter in my hand, I've tried to buy cool stuff that promised to satisfy me. From gumballs to houses, the past 32 years of my life have made it clear that nothing on this planet will ever satisfy me the way Jesus can. Here's why. Jesus is worth more than I could ever own because he gives me what I could never buy. 
Jesus is worth more than I could ever own because he gives me what I could never buy. I love this. In chapter 21, Luke describes this scene at the temple treasury. He says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Again, in Matthew, Jesus shares two similar parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went, sold all that he had, and bought the whole field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. In all these examples, it's clear that the person treasures something far greater than all their possessions. The widow gives all that she has. The man buys an entire field. The merchant sells everything he has to buy this pearl of great value. Contrast this with the story of the rich young ruler, who when he met Jesus, walked away from him disappointed. Jesus had commanded him to give away everything he had, but the young man was unwilling. His mistake was overestimating the worth of what he already had and underestimating the worth of what he could have with Jesus. When we understand how much more value we gain by having more of Jesus than by having more of our possessions, we are freed from the bondage of materialism. We are not slaves to clever advertising and opulence. Corey ten Boom says, you can never learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. But how exactly do we treasure Jesus more than our possessions? Simple. Learn to enjoy him more. Seek him in his word. Read your Bible daily. Confess your sin to him. Invite discipleship and accountability into your life. Experience the impact of his transformative power on your life. I can assure you, no matter how impressive that 4K TV is, it will never soften a heart to become a better listener, to delight in your spouse, or to guide your children and grandchildren in wisdom and truth. You know, I've heard people doubt the value of Jesus, especially in Denver, really across Colorado. And why wouldn't they? Do our possessions reflect our value in Jesus or in things? Do we sacrifice buying certain things in order to invest in ministries that grow God's kingdom? Do we use our resources to reach the three billion people who've never even heard the name of Jesus? And millions more are brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering from famine, disease. Are we more invested in scoring a deal on a new flat screen TV than ministering to these people? It's an easy trap to fall into. We grow up in the United States and we're told to believe we can have anything we want. And we deserve it if we work hard. And, and I sometimes wonder if the American dream might be a Christian nightmare. It's way too self-centered. My happiness, my accomplishment, my possessions. Our lives must show that we value Jesus more than our possessions. Our lives must show that satisfaction and enjoyment is not found in a house, a car, a spouse, 2.5 kids, and a dog. The height of our satisfaction 
will come from the depth of our love for Jesus. Look at what Paul says say about this in Philippians 3. He says, but whatever was gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ Jesus. So what happens when we treasure Jesus more than our status? When we treasure Jesus more than our possessions? In verses 9 and 10, we see Zacchaeus experienced a new relationship with Jesus. A new life that came from Jesus and a new eternal destination. For us this morning, I want to challenge you with something really special. Treasure Jesus more than what other people think of you. More than all your awesome stuff. And together, let's take the next step to find that we can treasure Jesus more than life itself. Here's our last point this morning. Treasure Jesus more than life. There's a story I read about a man named John Robert Fox. He was a 29-year-old African-American husband and father, and he was fighting for the United States during World War II, almost exactly 75 years ago to the day. And he died. His wife widowed his daughter fatherless. He was in Italy uh, fighting in a small town, defending it against Nazi invaders. It was on Christmas Day, and uh, it was, it was, not, it was like, a, like a ceasefire on Christmas Day. And all these, you know, they were just ro- strolling through the streets. Everyone was having fun, celebrating. It was just a, a good kind of day off from war, which is kind of crazy. But as night rolled in, Nazi soldiers began to arrive and infiltrate the city. So much that the Allied forces were forced to retreat. But Fox instead found a place to hide in the second story of this building. And he continued to call out enemy positions on the radio. He called for artillery fire, increasingly close to his own position. He told his battalion commander, that's just where I wanted it. Bring it in another 60 yards. His commander protested, saying, there's already a heavy barrage in the area. If we do it again, it's going to be too close to you. Lieutenant Fox gave his adjustment, requesting that the barrage be fired. The distance was cut in half. The Germans continued to press forward in large numbers surrounding his position. They found him. Lieutenant Fox called for artillery fire. The commander protesting again, saying, Fox, that's going to be right on you. The last communication from Lieutenant Fox was, fire it. There's more of them than there are of us. Give them hell. Fox's body was found in the rubble amongst 100 dead German soldiers. At the cost of his own life, he inflicted heavy casualties, thereby delaying the advance of the enemy until the infantry and artillery units could be reorganized to meet the attack. John Robert Fox was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it wasn't just John Fox. Many men and women fought with valor and great sacrifice. And what could these men and women have fought for that they were willing to die? Was it they treasured more than their own lives? That family, freedom, our country. I think for each soldier, it's unique to them. But the truth is, they indeed treasured something greater than their own life. Can you imagine what this attitude could do to the church? I'm not sure if you've noticed a theme in many of my illustrations this morning. They're somehow related to war. 
And there's a reason for this. I believe we must treasure Jesus more than life. And to do this, we must wake up and adopt a wartime lifestyle. I love this phrase because it forces us to recognize that there is a very real war happening as we speak. A war between Jesus and sin. A war between truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. And there is a war effort that must be funded. Weapons supplied to ensure victory. And these weapons are not just guns and bombs, but they're prayer, self-sacrificing love, and the gospel. How easily we can slip into a peacetime mindset, thinking that we can use our money and our resources the same way that unbelievers do. In the luxury of our life, we can forget the need for global missions, an unreached peoples, or even our neighbor across the street. How easily we fall in love with earth, thinking this is our forever home. What if Christians operated like Americans during World War II? Our country unified around a single mind, victory over evil, no matter the cost. You know, people, they they rationed their food. They rationed their gas. They rationed everything they could to send resources to the front lines. People bought war bonds. They planted victory gardens. They conserved as much as they could and inconvenienced themselves as much as possible with the attitude of supporting the war effort. The slogan, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without, became an anthem for Americans during the war effort. (laughs) When's the last time you heard an advertisement tell you to do without? Throughout history, there are countless stories of sacrifice and selflessness. And church, I love every one of these stories, these incredible causes that men and women fought for, but the greatest cause in the world is joyfully rescuing people from hell, meeting their earthly needs, making them glad in God, and doing it with a kind of serious pleasure that makes Christ look like the treasure he is. What could happen when the people of Aberdeen Church adopt a wartime lifestyle What happens when the mission of the gospel galvanizes us to one purpose? Will you dream about the incredible things God might be calling you to do? Yes, it might seem hazardous. Yes, the way may be a little bit uncertain. And yes, it will be worth it. My family and I right now, we're, I I wish I could stand right here and say, We're coming to Pueblo. We're going to plant this church. It's going to be great. Nothing's going to go wrong. And we're so confident. But that wouldn't be the truth. I'm nervous. It it could go wrong. All of the years we've invested, the work we've spent trying to build a life in Colorado could all be lost. We're putting all this money into a house. It sells for a lot in in Colorado. In Denver, it might. We're Things could go terribly wrong. We're giving up all of our friends, our jobs. That we got to find, We're trying to find new jobs, and, and our kids have their schools. We're trying to find a new school. All of this is risky, and it's a little bit scary. And even my parents, when I, I told them I was doing this, they're like, Scott, are you sure this is what you're supposed to be doing? My dad isn't, isn't quite a believer yet. It's getting closer He's like, Scott, I mean, if, he's like, you, you have skills. I think you can do well, but this, this is a big, 
This is a big step. My mom, who, like every good mom, is like, you're crazy for doing this. Cause she, <laughs> she's, she's, she's afraid that something could happen to her baby. Um, so she's trying to protect me. She's, she's worried about the risk. And I, I get that. I get that. But Jesus is worth it. One of my biggest fears, this is a, this is a dream that kind of like, it's like a visual in my head of seeing like, like a family in Pueblo over in the, where the Bessemers were planting, seeing someone come in there, like maybe it's six months from now, I don't know when it is, when we start gathering for church, and them saying, thank you for coming, but, but what took you so long? Why didn't you come sooner? I, I need to hear about this gospel. I want my kids to know. I want all my friends to know. It could have saved us from so much sin. And what am I going to say? I was scared. I didn't want to leave my comfy house in Highlands Ranch. I wanted to have enough money to, to feel like I could do whatever I want. That's not, that's not an excuse when someone could die tonight without Jesus and spend eternity in hell. I am abusing my salvation if all I'm doing is keeping it to myself. So all the money, all the planning, all that, it's worth it for Jesus. Because there are people who don't know Jesus right here in our city. Hopefully even in our church, I want be here. This is a great place to learn about Jesus. Hopefully we get more people who don't believe in God right here. And let's love them. Let's answer their questions. Let's walk with them. However long it takes, you're worth it. God spent 20 years drawing me to him for me to become a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Being from Austin isn't the only sin in my life. <laughs> Just kidding. I, love, I like Texas, but I've wanted to, I love Colorado so much. And God's brought me from that. We can't just play church. I'm going to say one more thing. I, I, I'm trying to be too preachy. There's this thing, I hear this so much, and I, I hear it a lot from, at least the church I was at, um, a lot of the older generation would say to me, you know, Scott, do you think we're in the, think we're in the end times? Think this is it? And they were kind of like calm about it. And it bothered me. How can you be calm if you really believe Jesus is coming back and there are three billion people who don't know him? How can you be calm if not every single one of your grandkids and your grandkids' friends, your grandkids' teacher doesn't know Jesus and Jesus comes back tomorrow? How can you be okay with that? When someone says, this might be the end times, I'm terrified. There are too many people who don't know Jesus. I got work to do. Church, we got work to do. I'm excited for heaven. It's going to be awesome. But man, I want to save as many people as I can. I used to say, hey, this is the way to go. This is the way to go. I don't want a single person to go to hell. And if they do, they're going to do it over my dead body with my hands grabbing their ankles saying, don't go. Church, we're not in a time of peace. There is an enemy who seeks to ravage and destroy. Some of you felt the pain of that sin. It breaks my heart to know that divorce is so high in Pueblo County and families are being torn apart. My parents were never married and the pain that it caused me growing up was really, really tough. I want to see families healed for the glory of God. Man, what can come from a strong father and a strong mother who love each other? What kind of testimony? That's powerful, guys. I don't want to pretend that what I've shared this morning is 
without struggle. I think most of us are already doing everything we can. Maybe what I'm talking about sounds too extreme. That's just one of those crazy church planter Christians. He's one of, he's one of those fancy guys or crazy guys. Halfway true. But I want to share one more last thing with you this morning. I've, I've, I've shown us Zacchaeus' example, right? That Jesus must be your greatest treasure, but, but why? What makes Jesus worthy of this great sacrifice and faith? Let me show you something really cool. You see, unlike Zacchaeus, you didn't have to climb a tree and risk ridicule and mockery. Jesus took your spot on a tree, a cross to be exact, and faced greater humiliation and mockery than anyone else. Unlike Zacchaeus, you didn't have to volunteer to pay back all of your debts or face penalty. Jesus paid your debt to God. In one supreme payment, to tell us that he cried out. Payment in full. He paid the highest penalty of sin and died for you. You see, Jesus loves you so radically that he has already done everything he is asking you to do and more. He loved you first, and he will never stop loving you. Jesus, the King of Kings, gave up every ounce of status he had in this world, despised and rejected by those he came to save. He, Jesus fell in love with no possession, for not even the Son of Man has a place to lay his head. And in life, he took on the appearance of man. He humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave his life for you. Not because you're good, but because he is good. This promise in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Make Jesus your greatest treasure, more than status, more than possessions, even more than your life. Treasure Jesus above all else. And you will know a completed satisfaction unlike anything this world can offer. And join the war effort because we could really use someone like you. Man, I, I'm so excited. If, if you feel like the Spirit's working on you today, I want to pray for us in a moment, but I think I would, we have a time of invitation. If you want to come up, if you want to pray, pray with me, pray on the altar. You want to make a decision for Jesus. Let's, let's do some business with God. Bow your heads and pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for doing everything you've asked us to do times a bajillion. Thank you for your grace because, God, there's not a perfect person among us. There's not a single one of us that's strong enough to bear the burden of all of everything we've talked about this morning. But, Jesus, you are. Let us not work out of our own strength, but let us work out of the infinite power of you. Put on our hearts right now that family member, that friend, that coworker that you are drawing us to who needs to hear this message. The good news is too good to keep it quiet. Jesus, we need your help. I know that I'm scared sometimes. But what is bravery if not action in the face of our fear? God, make us brave. You didn't give us a spirit of timidity. You gave us a spirit of courage and strength. And Lord, for the person in here this morning who maybe doesn't know this Jesus yet, who maybe hasn't made Jesus their greatest treasure, but they want to do it right now. They want to make that choice today. 
They don't have to be 100% sure. Jesus, if they're 51% sure, that's enough to be majority. Come on down. Jesus, use us. Use Aberdeen Church to be patient, to guide in love, to walk with people, to come to know this truth that we've heard every Sunday. People need Jesus. Amen. Amen.